The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. This summer, we have wanted to open up a conversation. Uh, and we would like it to be, ultimately, a congregation-wide conversation about what is the Bible talking about when it's talking about this type of love that the Bible calls agape in the Greek. The agape love. We really want to get a handle on what this means. It's going to be the subject not only of uh, today's class, but it's going to be the subject of a four or five part sermon series later on this fall. And we'll be talking a lot about this in the next several weeks and months. And so this summer, we've just tried to get the conversation going, put the topic on the table, get it on your radar screen, because this is something that we really want to live with for a while and get a handle on what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about this whole notion of love. Now, the world in which we live is continually telling us stories about love, but not all of those stories are helpful stories. Not all of those stories are accurate stories. And so the Bible says that, that God is love. And if you really want to understand love, you need to begin with God. And so that's why we're kind of moving through and finishing up today this discussion of what we call the Jesus Creed. Uh, it's based loosely on Scott McKnight's book of the same name. And uh, yes, yes, the same you know, bargain uh, uh, offer is available this week as last week. I think we still have three or four left, and they're $5 each if you're interested in picking one up and following through. The Jesus Creed, of course, comes from Mark chapter 12, 30 to 31. In fact, let me step back to verse 29. As Jesus kind of makes a deliberate attempt to connect what he's saying um, in his ministry, connect it with the experience of God's people going all the way back to Deuteronomy. And so he begins with the Old Testament Shema, the motto of God's uh, first covenant people, if I can put it that way. Um, if you really wanted to understand uh, what was kind of at the very center of um, Jewish life, center of life in Israel, spiritually and politically, you know, this was their kind of motto. This is their mantra. And it goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. There was nobody who would have been a part of God's family that hadn't heard that said and probably hadn't said it two or three times a day you know, throughout their entire lives. This was the rallying cry for God's first covenant people. And so interestingly enough, when we come to Mark and one of God's first covenant people, one of the, the lawyers, comes to him and says, so just by the way, Rabbi Jesus, of all of the commandments that are out there, and there's lots of them, what would you say is the most important commandment? And of course, Jesus does something expected and something unexpected, doesn't he? The expected thing he does is he goes back and brings back the Old Testament Shema and brings it up to date. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. At that particular point, the lawyer was sort of, check, you know, okay, good, got that, okay. But it was what Jesus did next that really kind of changed the whole inflection 
of what this was all about. Because he reached back into Leviticus 19 and he said, without missing a breath, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. And so Jesus reaches back into Old Testament history and pulls together two familiar ideas and puts them together in a brand new way. And this is now the mantra of God's new covenant people. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That should be as important to us as God's new covenant people as the Shema was to God's first covenant people. But love, man, what does it mean to love like this? And that's kind of what we've been sort of starting to unpack uh, in our series over the summer. So we talked about... Um, uh, the Shema, and we introduced it, and then Ross came and talked about uh, what love means in terms of our love outside the walls, and then Chris came and talked about what that love looks like inside the walls of the church, and then last week, I started that conversation about, well, what does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so last week when we gathered, uh, part one, we really started off with the loving God part, didn't we, right? We said that love means to believe in Jesus, and do you remember what we talked about? We said belief or faith primarily could be also spoken of as what? What word did we use? Faith equals trust, okay? Um, I noticed that a lot of you are people of faith. I can tell because you're all sitting in these chairs. And you're believing, you're trusting that these chairs are sufficient to hold your weight. And so you exercised faith the moment you sat down in that chair. You decided you were going to trust that chair. On what basis you're trusting that chair, I don't know, but that's the decision you made. And most of you, I, I think, anyone, that trust hasn't been misplaced anywhere, has it? Because they're new ones. Oh, because they're new ones. Okay, well, whatever. You, you made a faith decision that you're going to trust these chairs. And so loving God, first of all, means believing in Jesus. It means having a relationship with him, a relationship of trust that we call faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. On the basis of our relationship with him, we trust him. So to follow Jesus as an act of love means to trust him, that what he says is true and what he did is effective. And um, what he promised will come true. It's, it's, we trust him. We believe in Jesus. The second thing we talked about last week is that we abide in Jesus. Uh, the one thing needed to become like Christ is to have our radar screen always attuned to listening for his voice, right? We want to constantly pay attention to what he says because, as the old hymn says, we serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. And we know that he is with us, whatever men may say. And then, of course, we go into the chorus, he walks with me and he talks with me. Well, do you really believe that? Part of abiding is paying attention to that walking and talking voice. And so when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it means that throughout the day we are paying attention to hearing his voice and being attentive to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us who lives within us. Uh, John says in his uh, first letter, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. He just kind of collects it all together and puts it exactly like that. Uh, the third thing we talked about last week was that um, surrendering to Jesus is an important part of what it means 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we talked about the fact that all genuine love involves surrender. We love others only when we surrender to God and to them. We love when we put other people's interests as important or more important than our own. Um, we love when we put together uh, the things that we want, our will, in order to adopt Jesus' will, to follow his will, the Father's will. And that's called surrender in the scripture. And so loving Jesus is about believing in him, abiding in him, and surrendering to him. That's kind of the vertical that's kind of the vertical dimension of this thing called love. So what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of unpack the horizontal um, aspect of what love is all about. I want to talk about what does it mean to love others Jesus style. John Stott uh, in one of his books said this, and think about what he says here for a moment. I put it on your handout. Only if we serve will we experience freedom only if we lose ourselves in loving will we find ourselves. Only if we die to our own self-centeredness will we begin to live. Jesus simply put it this way. He who holds on to his life in this world will lose it, but he who loses his life in this world um, will gain it for now and for eternity. Wow, that's kind of a really tough concept to kind of get your head in mind. What does it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? What does it mean to lose your life in order to actually find it? And otherwise, something that so many people think is the most precious thing um, is something that is passing our life in this world, but there's something more important, life that lasts forever. He said, that's an incredible trade-off. Why wouldn't anybody trade life that ends in a few years for life that lasts forever. And so Jesus was trying to help us get a, an understanding of what that exchange was all about. When we talk about loving others, we sort of have to start asking ourselves, what is our first disposition to others when they kind of move into our space, when God brings them into our sphere of influence, okay? Because we all have kind of our way of doing things, don't we? And we have our way of thinking, and we kind of arrange our lives to kind of fit our own disposition. And um, when somebody comes in, that sometimes is a good thing, sometimes it's a troubling thing. It all depends upon how much it shakes up your world. And so the question is, how in the world do you respond to people, especially people unlike you, who the Lord brings into your sphere of influence? What is your first response? Now, you might say, well, you know, um, I have a hard time with broken people, right? I don't know what to do with broken people. People who are struggling with whatever it might be. You know, maybe they're financially on hard times. Maybe they've got some depression going on. Uh, maybe they're, you know, new in Canada and haven't quite understood all of the dimensions of what it means. But many times there's kind of a notion that when somebody comes into our world from outside without our invitation, that it's an imposition. That this is something that's kind of in our way. And sometimes, depending upon, you know, uh, where we're coming from, we can have a certain predisposition to those people that come into our life, all right? Sometimes, you know, we see somebody who's not like us and we can become a little judgmental, right? They're not like us. Or maybe we can become a little critical, you know. Well, if they really understood what was going on, they wouldn't be doing that. Or maybe we can even, you know, uh, be a little gossipy, right? You know, 
Uh, I can say something and smile and shake their hands, but on the back, did you see what that person was wearing? Like, really? You know? I mean, it's funny how we respond. I'm talking about our first response to people who come into our world, come into our sphere of influence. It's interesting for me to note that Jesus had a certain reputation among the people who were considered God's people, you know, kind of the religious people who were keeping the law and, you know, following through with the worship of God as best they knew how. Jesus had a certain reputation with those people. Does anybody remember what it was? He's a friend of sinners. I mean, you know, we don't think too much of that comment today, but at the time that it was being said of Jesus, I mean, this was kind of big eye insult. This was a huge put down. You know, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Somehow or another, he earned that reputation by making room in his life for broken people. In fact, he said, that's really what I came for, to seek and to save the lost. Who was it that Jesus was hard on? Who did he get in the face of when we look back over his story in the Gospels? Religious people who should have understood what the Bible was teaching, but somehow or another weren't clear in the concept. People who should have known better, he got in their face. But for people who were simply broken, he had tremendous compassion. In fact, he reached out to them. He showed them the love of God. He shared the gospel with them. He called them to put their faith in God, put their faith in him. And so think about this for a moment. If we are Christ followers, it means we're sons and daughters of God, right? We're part of God's forever family. And because we've been adopted by sons and daughters, that should mean that we bear the family resemblance, no? If we are children of our father, shouldn't we, you know, shouldn't there be like, right? Get, you know, we're marrying. We're now chips off the old block. I say that with respect. Um, we become like God. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is if we are really following Jesus, if we are his sons and his daughters, what should our first disposition, our first inclination, our first response, what should be our DNA towards other people? Well, it should be agape love. Instead of dumping people, reaching out to them. Instead of dismissing them, engaging them. Instead of ignoring them, helping them. That is the DNA of a Christ follower. Love changes all the rules. And so let me just unpack this a little bit uh, this morning. And there's way more that can be said than what we're going to get to this morning, but I at least want to mention these three things. So if you're following through on your outline, this whole business of what does it mean to love Jesus when it comes to actually loving others, showing this love to other people. He has shown us his love. We love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now we're trying to get a hold of and love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, you follow? That's what we're trying to get a handle on right here. Um, and so the very first thing I want to make mention of, loving Jesus when it comes to reaching out to other people involves, here's the word, restoring in Jesus. Okay? Now for some of you, you just might have question marks coming up. What? What? Restoring, it's not a word we use every day, unless, uh, you know, you restore furniture. But, you know, I want to park on this word. In 1 John 1, 7 to 9, this is what John says. Follow with me. If we walk in the light, 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And then he says something kind of sobering. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What John is describing here is this process of restoration where God takes what is broken and he makes it new. It, it, it happens when you first get started with Jesus. If any man, if any woman is in Jesus Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. God wants to bring new things into your life and mine. He wants us to become the people he imagines us to become. He wants us to become our very best self. But the reality is we don't get it right all the time, right? I, maybe I'm just talking for myself, but we don't get it right all the time, which means we need a way of kind of restoring our relationship with God and restoring our own lives, and that's what God wants to do in our lives. All Christ followers, even leaders sometimes, fail and need restoration in Jesus. We just need it. And the good news is that we can be restored. The good news is that there is a way to be restored. The good news is that's what Jesus died on the cross to do, to make you new and to make me new. And even when we feel that we've totally messed up and we don't deserve another chance, the grace of God is extended as we come to him in repentance and uh, confession, and he gives us a new, a new ch another chance and a new direction. Okay, that's what repentance means. It means moving off in a whole new direction. So the bottom line is, we all need to be restored. And many times, we have received that incredible gift with tears, just knowing it's nothing we deserve, but it's something that God has given us. But here's the point I want to make. With the same passion that God wants to restore you, and he wants to restore me, he wants to restore your neighbor, your coworker, the stranger down at the grocery store, the sister that you don't get along with, the parent who is always correcting you. God wants to do a restoration in their life as well. So restoration is not just for you and me as sons and daughters of God, it's for all people. Jesus died for all people. And somehow or another, he wants us to be exporters. What we have received, he wants us to pass on to other people. And so our first response to Boker and people, if we are really have a heart to see them restored, is not to throw them an anchor, it's to give them a hand. That's the predisposition of somebody who got a love is flowing through their veins. Admission of failure and addressing failure sets the stage for restoration and confession opens the door to grace. Have you ever wondered why it says that kind of strange thing in the scriptures, that we should confess our sins one to another? Well, if everybody's bent on seeing people restored and healed, then it's a safe place for people to do just that. But if somehow or another it's not a safe place, then it's not a good place for people to actually share the deepest things on their heart. The three R's of failure, according to Scott McKnight in his book, The Jesus Creed, are number one, rebuke. Sinful behavior must be pointed out. Conviction of the sin is the Holy Spirit's gift to us, really. It's the red light on our dashboard. We've already talked about it. The second R, if you're following along on your sheet, is repentance, 
which is where we take responsibility for our wrongdoing and we make restitution if we can and we change direction, we make a new commitment to walk in the way that God wants us to walk. To repent, somebody has said, is to come to your senses. I kind of like that. It's kind of like, you know, the prodigal son, he came to his senses. Repenting is about coming to your senses and moving back into God's direction. And then the third thing Scott talks about is restoration. Jesus is always, underlying always, ready to restore the one who faces and forsakes their sin. He is always ready to restore. Um, you know, you remember that whole thing where, you know, Peter is trying to get with the program and Jesus is talking about uh, forgiving and, um, and uh, you know, Peter wants Jesus to know he got the idea and he says, um, you know, so um, you talk about forgiving Jesus, like how many times should we forgive? Like seven times? And, you know, he's thinking, whoa, that's kind of going over and above. You know, nobody does it seven times, right? I can, you know, maybe I can do seven. Jesus said, okay, now, Peter, you're moving in the right direction, but you're not even in, in the right solar system yet. Seventy times seven. The Bible says as many times as a person repents and comes and asks for forgiveness, we should have a predisposition, an inclination, to um, work towards that person being restored. In fact, Paul and Galatians put it this way. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgressions, now follow this, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And be careful, lest you too be tempted. Okay? You who are spiritual, those of you who get agape, those of you who have been restored and know that people need healing, those of you who are, who are uh, spiritual should restore that person with gentleness. Okay? Not make it harder, put stumbling blocks between them and coming back to Jesus, but help them. Give them a hand. Throw them a lifeline. Bring them along. Sometimes when people, you know, come into our lives and they don't believe in what we do and they don't do things that we're comfortable with doing, we sometimes just feel that they're sort of, you know, uncomfortable. It's sort of, we don't know what to do with them, you know. Um, you know, the two Jewish leaders walk by, you know, the Jewish person in the ditch in the Good Samaritan parable, and it's just really inconvenient for them to actually reach out to a broken person. But the Samaritan, of course, kind of demonstrates the heart of God that broken people, he's all over them. He's very interested in them. It's why Jesus came to seek and to save that was the lost. So somehow or another, not only do we need to receive restoration, but if we love the way Jesus loved, we also become agents of restoration. We become healing people. In our Soul Keeping series this week, um, uh, uh, John Ortberg asked that question. He looks at you out of the screen and he says, are you a healing person? When you come into a crowd, what do you bring with you? Do you bring a healing heart, critical heart, condemning heart, a judging heart, or do you bring a healing heart? Do you understand that whatever it means to love others, it means that we care about their spiritual and practical health, and we want to be health bringers into those situations. So we're not called only to receive the love of God, we're also called to be agents of that love. And so Paul says, if you're spiritual, you should be really concerned about seeing people restored, seeing sinners saved, seeing people grow in Christ. And yes, that love will be a costly love when you invest your life in the life of someone else, but it's part of what it means to love others.
The second thing um, is forgiving in Jesus. Now, we've probably are a little more familiar with this one. We've all kind of trafficked down this road where we've been wounded and hurt and had to find some way uh, to find the freedom that comes from forgiving those who have sinned against us. Paul says in Colossians, put on then as God's holy and beloved people, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. Okay, do you sort of see how what we said about restoration? We need restoration, but we're called to be agents of restoration as well. We need God's forgiveness, but we're also called to be agents of forgiving others the way God has forgiven us. I mean, forgiveness, let's face it, it begins with God's act of forgiving. That's where we get an understanding of what forgiveness is really all about. That while we were still sinners, that's when Jesus laid down his life for us. I mean, his forgiveness was a sacrificial forgiveness. Forgiveness is what God does in response to what we do. Objective forgiveness is um, dealing with the offense, wanting to bring reconciliation in the relationship. A subjective forgiveness is actually waiting in and doing it. So in our minds, we often get a handle on you know, objective forgiveness, mentally we understand what that means, that we really should forgive. Subjective forgiveness is when we kind of roll up our sleeves and get down into the business of forgiving. That's a little trickier. Uh, that kind of takes more from us. There's some sacrifice that's involved. We're giving up our rights for redress because we want to save the relationship and bring that person back from the direction that they've been going. What God does, this is what, this is what Paul is saying, and Jesus said it as well, what God does is what Jesus expects his followers to do. It's what Jesus did. That's what expects his followers to do. And so Jesus' followers are directed to have a predisposition of forgiveness. Um, rather than having sort of a predisposition to being offended, which I've had from time to time, maybe you have, rather have a predisposition to forgiving, okay? That doesn't mean that the hurt doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean that the wound isn't real. That doesn't mean that the sin should be ignored. But it means that, you know, somewhere along the line, we realize that forgiveness is what this person needs. And I need to be God's agent and help them. And I need to help myself in the process. The Bible says that, and this is, oh man, this one's a tough one to swallow. Forgiveness is a litmus test of whether or not you're actually a follower of Jesus. People who refuse to forgive somehow don't get Jesus. They don't quite get what agape love is all about. And the, their unwillingness to forgive kind of works against them, you know? Uh, have you heard, have you seen that um, awful commercial about recycling? You know, where you got the guys on the hockey bench, right? And one guy leans to another guy over uh, uh, in between shifts and he says, uh, Listen, I understand you're not recycling. And the guy says, well, who told you that? And all of a sudden, you know, this plastic bottle looks over the boards, you know, with the, you know. Now, by the way, totally shame-based motivation. We'll, we'll talk about that next week on, on our Sunday services. But the notion is, you know, your sins will find you out. I think that's the point they're trying to make with that particular thing. Well, the bottom line is, when we have an unforgiving spirit, it kind of outs us. 
has not really been in connection with the God who has forgiven us. Somehow or another, as Jesus forgave us, we need to forgive other people. Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, because they don't get it. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and when people are kind of not in touch with the truth that Jesus brings, they're kind of operating in a fog. They're operating in the darkness. They really don't know what they're doing. They're not really the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. It's important for us who follow Jesus to kind of understand what's going on there. Now, I'm not saying that forgiveness is a piece of cake. And I have sometimes taken way too long to actually come to the place where I was able to let something go. I say that to my discredit. But God understands that, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and he lives inside of me. And if we have a predisposition to forgive, just like we have a predisposition to restore, the Holy Spirit helps us to follow through, because this is very much in keeping with who God is. Um, we should forgive others every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, right? This is your prayer, right? This is your prayer. Lord, forgive me. In the same way that I forgive other people. Think about that whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer. We run over that very, very, very quickly. But in a sense, we're saying, we're setting up a bit of a condition here, aren't we? We're saying, Lord, we need your forgiveness. Forgive us. Forgive us in the same way we're forgiving the people who offend us. Really? Do you want to pray that prayer? <laughs> you want to think about that sometimes. Forgiving others, uh, loving others means forgiving them. It doesn't mean we don't confront the offense. You do need to address the sin, whatever that might be. The Bible's clear on that. It's important that we recognize the impact. Every once in a while, someone's, you know, I said, listen, you know, I'm sorry I did this, and someone said it was nothing. No, no, it was something. It was wrong. I did the wrong thing. That needs to be addressed. The victim chooses to pursue objective forgiveness and then strive for reconciliation. And forgiveness, when we grant it, sets up an alternative reality. Forgivers unleash a flow of love to others in an incredible kind of way. I still like what Frederick Buechner says on this issue of forgiveness, and I've read it before, but just indulge me one more time. To forgive someone is to say, one way or another, you have done something unspeakable, and by all rights, I should call it quits between us. Both my pride and my principles demand no less. However, Although I make no guarantee that I'll be able to forget what you've done, and though we may both carry the scars for a long time, I refuse to let this stand between us. I still want this relationship. To accept forgiveness means to admit that you've done something unspeakable that needs to be forgiven. And so for both parties, both for the one asking for forgiveness and the one who is granting forgiveness, they have to swallow the same thing, right? And that thing is? Pride, both for the forgiver and for the one seeking forgiveness. They both have to swallow pride. It's pride that keeps us from forgiving. It's the same pride that keeps us from accepting forgiveness. And so forgiving in Jesus is, is kind of a, a characteristic. It's a trait of somebody who is understanding what love is all about, who's been transformed by the love of God and now is an agent, a transporter, an importer, I mean an exporter of that love, that agape love to other people. So restoring in Jesus, not only receiving it, but also extending it to others, seeking the health, spiritual health and benefit of other people, um, forgiving others to restore the relationship because we need forgiveness, but 
in our relationships, we also need to extend forgiveness at what makes community happen. There's one more thing I want to add, and that is reaching out in Jesus, if you're following on your sheet. It's very interesting. Do you remember that passage in uh, Matthew 9, 36, where uh, Jesus looks across the crowd, and the Bible says, Mark reports, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion upon them. His agape love was, was triggered. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, when he saw people in need, he loved them, not withdrew from them. When he saw people who were struggling, he was drawn to them because that's what he came to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We are called to invest our lives in the lives of other people. We are not just disciples, we're also disciple makers. All of us are. And somehow or another, has God has uh, reached out to us in Jesus, our calling now is to reach out to others in Jesus' name. Love has arms that reach out, always, because people matter to God. And if they matter to God, they should matter to us as well. He came specifically to seek and save those who are at loss. And so we're called to be witnesses to what Christ has done, declaring the gospel with its offer of forgiveness or judgment, because there are two sides to this gospel. But the mission of every Christ follower is to reach out to others with the mission of Jesus. We want to build bridges over which people can come and find Christ. Somebody once said to me that using the notion of the incarnational principle, when God wanted to reach us, God came close in the person of Jesus. When Jesus has it in mind to reach your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, Jesus decides to get close to them in the person of you and in the person of me. So Jesus incarnates himself in us as we kind of follow through with his mission and love them the way Jesus would love them if he was here himself. And so the kingdom is seen in loving God and loving others. Uh, Robert Mulholland says Christian spiritual formation is that whole process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. But others are always in the picture. If you go through the scriptures, uh, the New Testament in particular, I've counted no less than about 25 or 30 one another statements. Forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, um, be gracious to one another. You know, it, the list goes on and on. Uh, be patient with one another, be long-suffering with one another. I mean, the list goes, restore one another. The list goes on and on. We are to be one another kind of people. That's what the Christian community is all about. That's why we're a body and not just a collective, because our desire is to import, uh, or export, I'm sorry, the love of God to all people. But we need to be doing it in a certain type of way. We are living in a day and age right now that if you read the paper, you see people of faith who are making their voices heard on a number of different subjects from uh, all of the things that have been mentioned in our uh, You Asked For It series over the summer. You know, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, genocide, you know, infanticide. I mean, the list goes on and on. We've tried to deal with some of those uses over the summer. And many times, the voice of the church is a very strident 
voice. It's a very in-your-face voice. It is a very, many times, unlike Jesus. Keep in mind, Jesus was the friend of sinners. It's the religious people that struggled with what Jesus had to teach. And as I've sort of tried to think this through, I mean, sin needs to be addressed. I'm not arguing with that. But how do you go about doing that? Paul helps us out in the advice he gives to Timothy. I, I come back to this passage again and again as a reminder of what should be my disposition to uh, people who don't believe in the same thing that I do, people who maybe are enemies or in opposition to where I'm at or just really are critical of my point of view. As a Christ follower, what is my predisposition? What should be my inclination? What should be my first response? What is the DNA of a follower of Jesus Christ who has the love, the agape love of God flowing through their veins? How do they respond to an unbelieving world? Well, this was Paul's advice to Timothy. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do as well. Paul isn't messing around. He's saying, here's what's going on. Yes, these people are victims of the enemy. Let's not make any mistake about that. But he's saying, you know, we need to approach these people with a certain frame of mind. And look at some of the words he says. Not quarrelsome, kind. Yes, we speak the truth, able to teach. Patiently enduring evil when we're misunderstood and mistreated. Correcting our opponents with gentleness. Not ignoring the issue, but doing it with gentleness. Because we have this belief that if the love of God really registers with them, if they come to know Jesus Christ, Jesus can rescue them. Not my job to rescue them. My job is to bring them to Jesus, and Jesus will do what only he can do. But as I reach out to others in Jesus Christ, this passage reminds me, this should be my predisposition. This should be my inclination towards uh, other people. That, you know, I'm not out there to pick fights. I'm not out there to put people down. I'm there to introduce people to the Jesus that has rescued me and has the willingness and the ability to rescue them too. And so I need to listen more than I talk. I need to answer questions that they're actually asking. That's kind of what I think Paul is getting at as he kind of gives Timothy advice on how do you deal with an unbelieving world around you. We don't have the option of withdrawing. We don't have the option of kind of holding up in the fortress and just hoping Jesus will come soon. Jesus said, I've given you my Holy Spirit for this very purpose, that you will be my witnesses through word and deed in your community, in your province, in your nation, around the world, wherever it is that the Lord should happen to engage you. And so reaching out is kind of what Jesus is all about. If we're his followers, it's kind of what we're all about as well. If we love others, we will love them enough to get close enough and hopefully build enough relationship that we'll be able to build a bridge so that they can come and meet Jesus for themselves and be changed and transformed. Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 12, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. And here's the thing to underline. 
By this will all people know you're my disciples. If you have love one for another. When people kind of look inside the church and do not see restoring, forgiving, outreaching love taking place, when we can't get our act together, that does not represent Jesus well. And many people, because they have misunderstood, have kind of stood away from the church. They're interested in Jesus, but they're not too interested in church because of church hurts. Somehow or another, as a congregation, we want to be a place where we don't hurt people, we heal people. We want to be a healing presence, right? We want this to be, somebody has said that a church is a hospital for sick souls. You may not like that imagery, but there's a sense in which that is exactly true. I was a sick soul once, and I needed God's people to help me. And praise God they did. And God wants to use you to make a difference in the life of someone else. But this is the mark of a Christian. This love, this agape love. Well, we have been meeting together with um, a small group of people to sort of think about agape love and sort of kind of get a handle on, well, what does this look like? And um, this is the best expression that we've got so far, okay? Um, and so here is sort of a, uh, a way of understanding what this kind of agape love that we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Here's kind of what it's about. Agape is the greatest, purest, and most powerful form of love imaginable. Agape is sourced in the very nature of God. We love because God loved us first. God is love, and he who abides in God abides in love, and if we love, he abides in us. Whenever a person interacts with God, they receive an unconditional expression of God's agape love. And to be a follower of Jesus is to experience this agape love in the context of a continually growing relationship with God. The relationship positions you not only to receive his love within you, but to radiate his love to those around you in the form of active expressions of compassion. This inward and outward dynamic will be maximized when you nurture your soul. As uh, we're talking about in soul keeping on Wednesday and Thursday nights, uh, there's only one person who can keep your soul, and that keeper is you, and its keeper is me. Think of agape as the blood that flows through your soul, transforming it, keeping it vibrant and healthy. It's the DNA of a follower of Jesus Christ. When people see this love acted out, when they see that that is our predisposition to heal people, to forgive people and bring them to Jesus, when they see that taking place, they'll go, whoa, that's not love that I've seen anywhere else in the world. There's something unique about it. There's something of God in that. I don't know about you, but don't you want to be a part of a people like that? Don't you want to be that kind of a presence in East Vancouver? A place where people are attracted because love is continually the way we go about it. And, and I think it's great, I think it's really great when we do specific things that show love, okay? I think it's great when we, um, you know, uh, have a clothes closet where people who uh, are economically challenged can come and buy clothes and close their family at a reasonable cost. That's a good, loving thing to do. I think food for families is a great thing to do where we provide organic and healthy food for people, that's an expression of love, okay? Nothing wrong with that, we need those kinds of expressions. But agape needs to be who we are, 
so that it will kind of emanate in what we do. Somebody once said, it's a lot easier to um, act your way into feeling than to feel your way into acting. I think that's probably true. And sometimes the way to tap into that agape love that God has shown you is to actually do something loving for someone else and it kind of breaks the log jam. But ultimately, we want love to be second nature. We don't want to be spending a lot of time working through, well, who is my neighbor and what does love look like? We just want to get to that place where that love just kind of flows through us and shows itself up in all kinds of creative ways, depending upon who comes God's our way, who God brings our way. And I just, that's my prayer, that, you know, we would become that type of a community where love is just our DNA, it's just the way we do business, it's just the way we treat people, it is just second nature. And out of that love, that transforming love, we find all kinds of ingenious ways to reach out to people with the love of God. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for uh, this summer's series, and we thank you for putting this subject on our radar screen. And Lord, each one of us struggles in this area. There are some days when we are more loving than others. Uh, there are times when we are deeply wounded that we find forgiveness hard to, to, to find. Uh, there are some times where people seem so different than we are that we just are at a loss as to how we build any bridges. But Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. And so Lord, I just pray that you would give us an ear towards the Spirit and uh, a heart towards the people you're trying to reach and that you will give us everything we need to show your love to a needy world. So transform us and make us a transforming people in our community. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.